Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy! Necessary, colossal, frank, funny, feeling, crucial, bold, brave, groundbreaking, and a joy to behold. Let's give her another round of applause. feel like sitting feels weird. I'll do I'll do my sitting later. Um, thank you for coming to this book event and cramming in here. This is really lovely of all of you to make it out. Um, I'm Jessica Hopper. Thank you. I wrote this book. Um, so um, I'm uh, gonna read it, the whole thing. You guys don't have anything to do tonight, do you? Um, so the, uh, I'll start with the first piece. So the first piece in here is, um, sorry, this is, being loud is a weird thing sometimes. Um, so the first thing in here is sort of, uh, maybe the closest thing I have to like a manifesto about music criticism and writing. And, uh, I wrote it in 2002 and it first appeared in my fanzine that I did for a super long time. And, um, I wrote it after reading, like maybe about the time that this came out, there was like a kind of a, a glut and by glut, I think, I mean like four, um, books by sort of canonical rock critics that had come out. It was like the 10th anniversary of Lester Bang's, uh, collection and Nick Tosh's collection, all this stuff. And I read all of them right in a row. And I was sort of like curious, like, do I, do I fit into this thing that I like to do? Um, and it's called, I have a strange relationship with music. I have a strange relationship with music. It's strange by virtue of what I need from it. Some days, it's the simple things. Distraction, entertainment, the sticky joy garnered only from Timbaland beats. Then, sometimes, usually in the part of the morning that is still the nighttime, and most especially lately, I'm painfully aware of every single thing that I need from music, embarrassed by what I ask of it. Having developed such a desperate belief in the power of music to salve and heal me, I ask big over and over again. I have an appetite for deliverance, and I'm not really interested in trying to figure out whether that qualifies me as lucky or pathetic. The stereo is just past halfway to as loud as it will go. The rolling bass of Van Morrison's TB Sheets, the first song on side two of the album of the same name, is moving throughout the house. Its punctuating bump and grind is ricocheting off the parquet floor, sound filling every room. This makes the fourth night of the last five that I'm doing the same routine. Lights out, alone, in a, in a precarious emotional state not worth explaining, dancing, though in a way that is barely dancing, because lying down is out of the question on a night as hot as this, and lying down means being motionless, and there's really no being still right now. TV Sheets is a great album on which seven of the eight songs are about Van Morrison and a girl he loves, who's dying of tuberculosis. I can count on one hand the times I've made it through this entire album without crying. It's brutal, and it never fails to deliver in its relentless humanity. 
Some songs detail the recent past, their golden reminiscence of some then-average day that will now have to be enough for a lifetime. He's asking her, do you remember? Do you remember? He's insinuating some intimate exchange, some forgotten little secret. He needs her to remember. Beside you is a fierce, rambling pledge. He's pleading for her confidence and a torrential cadence of nearly unintelligible half-sentences that sound like they could be directions someplace. Before the decimating crescendo, he sounds drunk, a little off-key, hysterical. He's now saying everything that he ever meant to say to her and didn't. He's confessing himself, as if this act of deathbed desperation, this unbearable love, this compassion to the point of oneness with her, if she just knew it and could really understand it and take it in, it just might save her. All of this is cast out amongst bottomless, trilling B3 sustain. The title track, TB Sheets, is 9 minutes and 44 seconds, a van rending an exquisite topography of bleak human expanse. It's an outline of him collapsing under the weight of incontrovertible mortal Paul in a dialect too casual and acrimonious for how well he really knows her. He's unable to be of any use, unable to get far away fast enough from his fear. He's evading the knowledge of exactly what all of this means. Details give way to a much deeper reckoning. I can almost smell the TB sheets, he sings, audibly choking for air, and repeating again, I gotta go, I gotta go, over and over. It's like a mantra of absolution. He's seeking another set of chances, burdened by his survival. But it's too late. He's in for all he's got. It's a song of failure. It's realizing that sometimes the best you've got to give isn't much of anything at all. Dancing in pitch-dark rooms, rooms illuminated exclusively by the tiny light at the turntable, this is an activity that fits very well with my ideas of rock critic behavior, which is like normal music fan behavior, but substantially more pitiful and indulgent. It's behavior that comes from an inextricable soul entanglement with music that is insular, boundless, devoted, celebratory, and willfully pathetic. It's my fantasized notion of what a real rock critic scenario is like. A special manual typewriter, ashtrays full of thin roaches, an extensive knowledge of Mott the Hoople lyrics. It may also include a fetishizing of the truth, which turns gory regardless of what records you listen to and the detoured attempts to illuminate the exact heaven of Eric B. and Rakim or rocket from the tombs with the fluorescent lighting of your 3 a.m. genius stroke prose. And most of all, it's an insatiable appetite for rapture that cannot be coaxed by any other means. It's exhaustively chronicling what it is that artists possess that we mere mortals do not, what it is that they offer up that we're unable or unwilling to say for ourselves. They offer a connection to the disconnected. They make our secrets bearable in their verses and choruses. Ornate in their undoing, their gambling with their happiness, their personal irredemption, their humility, using a failure to build a podium to reach God, their faked orgasms and in-between song skits, their solos, their clever rhymes, their crippled expectations, their spiritual drift, their still unmet Oedipal needs, their fuckless nights, their not-so-gradual disappearance from reality, their rodeo blues, their unflagging romantic beliefs, being an outlaw for your love, 
Reaganomics, The Summer They'll Never Forget, The Power of Funk, Hanging at the Nice Nice with the Eye Patch Guy, American Apathy, Taking Hose to the Cheesecake Factory, Getting Head and Drop Top Benzes, Isolation, The Benefits of Capitalism, Screwing Stevie Nicks in the Tall Green Grass, The Swirling Death Dust, The Underground, and None of the Above. I want it. I need it. Because all these records, they give me a language to decipher just how fucked I am. Because there's a void in my guts, which can only be filled by songs. So that's that. What is that weird sound? Wow. Well, it's better than when I was in North Carolina and they decided just special for my reading they would turn off both the fans and the air conditioning and it was the hottest day they'd had all year and everyone was just like dripping sweat. It was beautiful. Um, So I'm going to read something from this chapter, Bad Reviews, of which I have many. Um, You know, I just like to write them, I guess. Um, So this is about... uh, Famous underground artist, revered by many, Miley Cyrus. And this is a, uh, she made an album called Bangers. Do you guys know it? Yes. So now I will read to you about it. Um, What is there to review when it comes to a Miley Cyrus album? Her singing, affected and perfected by software. How her powerless pop makes you feel deep down in your quivering soul. How to rate this latest iteration of her persona. How to address these complex matters of cultural ownership with a post-teen girl that has belonged to the public for her whole life long. Her girlhood was uh, turned into one of the great products of our age. A bigger emblem of the empire than Mickey Mouse himself. What else could she do but nuke it, saturate herself in our greedy gaze until she dissolves, give it all away, turn herself out until our knowledge of her was borderline gynecological? (laughs) Is there a part of Miley that remains unknown? Did you really expect an album called Bangers to reveal anything to you? (laughs) In knowing everything, we find we know nothing. The entertainment value of of Cyrus's work is more than simple, typical pop pleasure. It's the slow-motion horror of watching toxic sleaze replace toxic purity. That's a Dave Hickey quote. At her extremes, she firmly engaged our most puritanical mores. From saccharine virgin to knowingly filleting sledgehammer, Cyrus is at once both banal and pernicious. Though bangers may seem like some sort of sudden, shocking transgression as she grinds gears from Disney Disney World to World Star, her hit 2009's Party in the USA foretold it all, the wow and muchness of fame, Jay-Z on the radio. Cyrus has touted this album as, quote, sexy, believable, and very adult. Though only the latter actually rings true and only in the traditional male fantasy-driven pornographic sense of adult, her actions, and even more so her inactions, conform to the arc of most mainstream adult entertainment. Here, she's often pliant and naive, begging to serve, or at least be noticed and deemed worthy. On the frail penned hashtag get it right, she lays in bed, powerless and horny, overcome and waiting to be activated by male desire. On My Darling, she solicits the revivifying attentions of a dude who is just not that into her. 
On maybe you're right, and FU she leaves. On SMS, she alludes to taking satisfaction into her own hands. Wink, wink. But it's all played for what else but titillation. I will skip this long part where I detail the production credits. Um, it's strange to think that anyone could find this record offensive or controversial. What are we to even extract from bangers about the interior life of someone who reported that her true liberation was driving a Ford Explorer down Philly South Street, a cheap chain standing in for her zipless fuck? Is it a glance into a fantasy life unlived? Is her woman spurned exultation as powerful as the version that Katy Perry sells to us? Is her pathos as grand as Rihanna's? Is her pleasure as real? Though Cyrus has a lovely, albeit generic voice, singing is not her truest gift. Instead, it's the sheer quality of her mirroring, the way she gives us exactly what we want in lethal doses, grinding against our most American horror. As Pharrell himself says in the new MTV doc, Miley Cyrus, The Movement. I know, right? Okay. Why is she doing this? Because she's a product of America. He's a genius. She's playing it like a rebel, but Miley's simply being who we've goaded her to be. So there's that one. Finally tonight, so I've been on tour for like 10 days, and only finally tonight did I get my bookmark game down. Um, so this is, um, this is, this is, um, the only piece in the book that has not been previously published is this thing that I'm going to read, and it was, um, <clears throat> it was a paper that I wrote for a thing called the EMP Conference, um, and it's from uh, 2005, and it is called Louder Than Love, My Teen Grunge Poserdom. It's autobiographical. There was a time, not too terribly long ago, when I was not cool. In 1990, I was 14, almost 15, and had just entered ninth grade at the largest high school in Minneapolis, and I was orbiting somewhere between loner dork and amorphous weirdo. My wardrobe consisted of a lot of black clothes, a lot of orange clothes, my mother's business casual apparel from the 1980s. I wore cowboy boots and favored long, unbelted tunics that made me look like I was in a cult. I spent a lot of time alone, sewing hats and reading news magazines to keep up on international politics. The music I knew about was from the radio. I had a few tapes that I liked. The B-52's Cosmic Thing, Delight, the first Tracy Chapman album. I mostly listened to these tapes on the weekend when I was delivering my newspaper route, though sometimes I would lay in bed at night and listen to the Tracy Chapman tape over and over and cry a little. <laughs> Six weeks after starting high school, I was sitting on the bleachers during freshman gym class, which I was already failing for refusing to dress for class, along with all of the other weirdos who were refusing gym on principle. Andrew Siemens, also of the ninth grade, came and sat down next to me and said, are you a punk or a hippie? I can't tell. I told him I liked The Clash, and he started drilling me about a million bands that I had never heard. The next day, he handed me a cassette tape, a mix made from a very specific subsection of his big brother's record collection. On it was Butthole Surfers, Babes in Toyland, Boredoms, Ball, Big Black, Bong Water on side one. Pussy Galore, Voidoids, and Stooges on the flip. By week's end, I was a convert and punk identified. 
As punk rock began to ravage and motivate my life, so did my adolescent hormones. I began to pine for the attention of punk boys, of which I knew three. <laughs> One of them was Andrew, and we could barely stand each other, but we were bonded in our conversations about Sonic Youth. His friend Ted, who wore a Jane's Addiction t-shirt every day and was on JV bowling. <laughs> he thought All Shut Down was the best replacements record, making him a no-go. <laughs> then there was Andrew Bacone, who was in the 10th grade, and he wasn't so much a punk as he was proactively grunge. Andrew became my crush by default, by virtue of the fact that he knew my name, and he knew who Husker Du was, and at the time, that was more than I had going with anyone else. <laughs> his look was proto-grunge, he, uh, he wore his hair long and in the middle part, his jeans were ripped, he wore a Mud Honey Super Fuzz Big Muff t-shirt and a flannel every day. He played drums in a cover, bar, a cover band of sorts with his college-age brother. They were called Corova Milk Bar, and their only gigs were in their parents' basement. Their repertoire read like a best of sub pop sampler Tad's Loser, Nirvana's Love Buzz, Floyd the Barber, a Soundgarden song, a Screaming Trees song, and they usually close their set with a Mud Honey medley that was actually just an infinite version of In and Out of Grace that alternated between the chorus and super long drum solos. <laughs> because I loved Andrew, and I wanted him to love me back. I thought, uh, and, though I was <laughs> and though I was approximately four feet tall and had a mouthful of braces and looked as much like a 14-year-old boy as I did a 14-year-old girl, I took the only route available to me. I became a grunge devotee. The process was simple. I made the rounds to every single record store in the Twin Cities, spending my hard-earned babysitting and paper delivery savings on anything with a Sub Pop logo on it. Every release in multiple formats, Mud Honey, Nirvana, Fluid, Tad, Dwarves, Soundgarden, L7, Dickless. I saved up $100 for an out-of-print Sub Pop 100 compilation. I mail-ordered five Mud Honey, two Fluid, and one Soundgarden t-shirt, and then I made my own Nirvana shirt with a Sharpie. I parted my hair in the middle, I ripped holes in the knees of my jeans, scrawled the names of every single band I'd ever heard of on my Chuck Taylor high tops and pen. I'm not sure why I thought dressing exactly like Andrew Bacone might lure him to me. <laughs> but I wanted to show that we were kindred spirits in the world, toughing out our teenage times with Tad's eight-way Santa on our Walkmans. Alas, the pose did not end there. I did things like casually wander past his classes after they got out, holding nothing but a mud honey cassette in my hand, <laughs> as if that was the only supply one needed for ninth grade. I took the same Russian class as him so that I would have the chance to tell him things like I was considering getting a tattoo of Mud Honey bassist Matt Lucan once I got the money together. <laughs> My project for film class was a documentary on his band, and it was 20 minutes of carefully edited band practice footage. And nothing but that. I got a C minus. I went to see The Fluid twice that year, despite hating them, in hopes of seeing him at the show. When I saw him that following Monday, as I was artfully lingering outside his AP English class, I said, I figured I would have seen you at the show last night. And he told me that he no longer was into the fluid. I was crushed. I had spent dozens of hours listening to their records, which I found to be unbearable. <laughs> Fantasizing and prepping for conversations about fluid minutiae that he and I might one day have. All soul soon left my pose. My obsession to detail slipped. I was coming to the agonizing conclusion that all of this, my teen girl masking, was in vain. <laughs>
I dedicated several months and several hundred dollars on trying to cultivate a connection that was never going to be. Still, I wasn't quite ready to give up the masquerade. At the end of the school year, I managed to get invited to a party where all three of the school's grunge cover bands were playing. I would soon have the chance to see my crush object one last time before the span of the summer. I went to the party wearing a Soundgarden Louder Than Love shirt that I had purchased at a local head shop special for the occasion. And I was slouching up against a wall, peacocking my ennui, sipping a Miller Lite and pretending to be way into that too. I was staying next to Andrew's best friend, Mike, who was setting up his bass rig, and I ventured to ask him, what was this awesome music we were listening to? He gawked at me, appalled, and said, uh, Soundgarden, louder than love. I scrambled, mortified, and insisted I was just too wasted to recognize Soundgarden, the most distinctive band of the grunge genre. I then had the torturous experience of watching Mike walk over to Andrew, relay this anecdote. Andrew looked towards me and snicker. I left the party, walked home, and cried myself to sleep. Less than a month later, I picked up a compilation called Kill Rock Stars. While my purchase was initially fueled by the inclusion of Nirvana and Melvin's tracks, both potential conversation topics with Andrew... Something else different, or something entirely different happened when I heard a band on side A, Bikini Kill. Kathleen Hanna's Rebel Yell posted the bail from my teen grunge prison. I had found music that suddenly meant everything to me. The band's Bikini Kill fanzine and cassette demo meant I no longer had reason to be obsessing over music that meant nothing. I was liberated from my days spent walking past some boy's locker, loudly humming Nirvana songs. Bikini Kill taught me something that neither Mudhoney nor Andrew Bacone ever could. That my teen girl soul mattered. That who I was mattered. What I thought and what I felt mattered. Even when they were invisible to everyone else. So, so Molly and I are going to going to Q&A for a tiny bit. She's going to facilitate some questioning, I suppose. And then um, if we have time, we can have like a little... We can open it up to the room. Does that sound okay, everybody? Where's my water? Hello. Is this my water? Yeah, okay. I think so. (laughs) Uh, That was great. Thanks, Molly. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I just have a few questions. I won't keep you too long. Okay, cool. I got uh, stuff to do. <laughs> uh, my first question was, are there any uh, musician autobiography or biographies that you love? Yes. <laughs> um, though right now, I can only think about the, the ones that like I hate the like most. The ant- <laughs> um, that Those Ke- count also. The, um, I don't know why this happened, but I read Keith Richards' entire autobiography, or like memoir. 
And like the part, has anyone else read this terrible book? Oh my God. I just kept thinking like, it will get better at some point. And the only thing I got out of it was like uh, reggae gossip um, <laughs> from the 80s. Like not even that good. And um, But the main thing I remember about it other than him being like, like a mind-blowingly terrible father and occasionally terrible human being, um, there's like a part where he's like um, walking around his estate in England and a turtle pops up out of this. Does everyone know what I'm talking about? A turtle pops up out of this like pond, and it frightens him so much, the nature, that he whips a rock at it. Oh, and I was like, fuck this guy. Why would you put that story in your own autobiography? Because you're Keith Richardson. Somebody's probably like writing a, you know. If that's what you're leaving in, I want to know. Like, <laughs> what you're leaving out. Nothing, no, no. Charming story about hurting a cute animal. Yeah. Total torture. Uh, I, I understand that. Definitely, I sort of think of the bad ones right away. Like mm-hmm. uh, the Tammy Wynette's memoir from like 72, which is sort of like um, pre. Uh, be, people weren't quite like sanitizing their music bios quite yet. And it opens very dramatically with taking her infant to like the emergency room. And it's just like drama, 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 roller coaster. Having like a bazillion kids, and then like there's like ten years where she's just doing hair before we even get to her. See, music that career. sounds amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I would recommend it. It's like a dollar on Amazon. Yeah, it's not necessarily also the sort of the biggest names are not always the most interesting books because like, I'm. I mean, I because they're always the as told. Tale. I assume you've read the Anthony Kiedis book, Scar Tissue. <laughs> I read like half of it while I was waiting for somebody like in a Barnes and Noble. It kind of all blends together because it's just like, oh, I met this beautiful girl and then we parted ways and then I wrote another great Red Hot Chili Peppers song. <laughs> I mean, that's that's like what you want to know. Yeah. But um, I really like, there's a good Little Richard biography that has some crazy stories in it about how he and Buddy Holly had threesomes on the road and just good gossip from the 50s. I love a trashter piece. Yeah. Yeah. And my, my favorite is uh, a book I bought totally by accident, which is uh, Tommy James from the Shondells. Wrote a book called The Mob, The Music, and Me, mm. which is about how the Shondells were just run by this totally mobbed-up record label in New York. And so he just has all these crazy stories about, like, oh, and my manager tried to shoot me, and then we did drugs together, and now we're friends again. And <laughs> I would read that. I yeah, would read that. I, I will send it to you. Um, I was wondering if uh, you wanted to talk about any writers that influenced your style or got you into the idea of music writing. Um, Not just music writers, but... I mean, uh, let's see. When, so when I was, like... I started writing about music when I was about 15 or 16, and um, I started by doing a fanzine, but I did a fanzine in part because um, I... I had like uh, I was obsessed with this band Babes in Toyland, who were like a local all-female punk band coming up, and um, they like the music press in Minneapolis was writing about them being like you know caustic and shrieky and amateur, like it was a bad thing, and um, I did not agree with that, and I was like calling around, being like. Hi, I'm I'm in ninth grade, and like you totally got this wrong. I would like to write a corrective for you. Um, you don't understand what this band means to girls. Blah blah blah. And people are like, Have you ever written before? I was like, Not outside of school. No. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I am an expert on this. Whatever. And people told me no, and I was like, Okay, fine. I'll start a fanzine, and that because that is what one did in the '90s, and um, put things on paper, and um, and. 
part of the reason that I thought I could do that is at the time the pop critic at the local um, paper was um, you know one of the leading feminist I mean just one of the leading critics at the time this woman Terry Sutton and um, because I grew up seeing that like in the paper every week like her writing things like saying like Marianne Faithful's book is like more important than anything you will ever hear by the stones you know <laughs> it's like yes my people and I had this maybe like mistaken idea that like there's like a Terry Sutton every town rather than there's two people in America who are basically the Terry Suttons of their town um, and so I just had this idea that like you know uh, writing about music through a feminist lens was like a very a natural like an employable thing you know <laughs> little did I know I feel like in the 90s that was it was kind of a thing yeah it was kind sure. of a thing um, and so that was I mean that was a big influence on me and then um, I mean you know a lot of the things I guess one of the main other ways that I think I figured out how to write was reading Joan Didion because I'd learned how to edit myself a little bit. Um, and that was the main thing, I guess. Uh, I was really into Pauline Kael also. It's just like I didn't get into her until like quite recently. I was real slow on the draw. She's so her. funny. She's yes. can be really mean, but always really funny. I love a mean review. <laughs> uh, but so yeah, something about the idea of just like turning out so much so many reviews, you know, and they're all sort of and she would only ever see a movie twice. The only movie that, or once, and the only movie that she saw twice was Mash, right? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes sense why you might have to see that twice to understand it. To like. understand the dialogue. Uh, you talk about this a little bit in the book, but uh, what are the? Do you have any like memories of just early cassettes or CDs or records that you were just obsessed with as a kid or becoming a a person with taste in music? Um. I mean, like, I mean, there's, like, infinity stories. Um, Maybe the weirdest thing that sort of shaped my music taste when I was young is um, when I first moved to Los Angeles. I used to live here. Um, Mm -hmm. Down by the Trader Joe's, over that way. Um, And um, and I was, it was, like, my first apartment as a teenager. I was still a teenager, and um, I, I... saved enough money to get like um, you know a decent turntable and all this stuff and then I told my mom like hey there's a box of records in the garage will you send them to me and by accident she sent me her records <laughs> and then like just for like six months forgot me to forgot to send my records and so I had like that's how I wound up getting like Steely Dan and Van Morrison and like a whole like I mean there was also like Quincy Jones the dude and like I just couldn't even like I was mostly listening to punk rock so that was like a bridge too far but um, that was kind of how I got into stuff that wasn't punk rock. Do you think that it was living in L.A. sort of opened your mind to, to soft rock? <laughs> <laughs> that didn't come until, like, a little bit more recently. I'm working on... Um, I'm researching my next book, which uh, takes space historically, like, in 1975, and so I'm listening to just all sorts of lovely mellow (laughs) toodly music and like fifth dimension and just stuff that's like like garbagey but also so soothing (laughs) um you know if if the young me would be very very shocked by how often I'm listening to the Carpenters and such. I feel like the young or even like Laura Nero. That's like I feel like you got to get into that at some point though. Yes. Just become like Ladies of the Canyon. <laughs> yeah. Again, I feel like there's a time a time for that in uh, in Los Angeles, especially to 
you know, I didn't get into Joni Mitchell until sort of late in the game because I think I sort of was so like, oh, you know, it's too, that's what like girls are supposed to like is Joni yes. Mitchell. And so I'm yes. going to like all this boy music and then just have And then that. you spend years like listening to shitty emo bands and you're like, <laughs> oh God. I love the emo article. That's one of my favorite hey, thank you. pieces in the book. Did you get a lot of um, backlash for that when it came out? Um, does everybody know what we're referencing? No? Okay. Um, so I wrote a piece, um, ballparking, like, two, uh, I don't know, like 1997, 2003, somewhere in there. Um, <laughs> I was young, um, very, very young. Um, but I wrote this, uh, I had a column in a magazine called Punk Planet that was, um, the thing we all read back then. Um, and, uh, it was about, I went to, to uh, see some punk and emo bands play at the All Ages Bowling Alley by my house where I basically lived every night and um, um, I was watching this band Strike Anywhere play and they have this song that was very much about like um, like girl I recognize the struggle of living in a patriarchy every day <laughs> you know and I was and I, aside from like being very touched by that I started crying because I realized I was like oh this is the first time like I'm here like four nights a week and this is the first time I'm seeing like men on stage like basically um all the other songs I was hearing and seeing like essentially erased my existence you know and I had this like weird uh you know moment of clarity where I was like oh fuck what is this and I just started sort of like drilling down into like why do I feel so alienated at these shows why even though this is totally my community do I just not feel part of this world and um why are there no girls on stage is it because uh, like every song is about girls and they're just like muses and is this um is this not just like descriptive but prescriptive and um then I spent about like 18 months just sort of like going into that and like fighting with people to figure out what I what I felt and um and uh when it came out it was like like the world exploded because I said emo was sexist basically and um and it's one of the pieces that I am best known for writing so that was sort of that the reaction to that was that came out and then this is sort of it was kind of right at the dawn of everybody having like an email address like we weren't we were just right almost to that time and so I got paper mail about three letters a day for approximately a year straight gender split boys are like you are stupid you do not know about music have you ever heard of rites of spring your head is up your ass fuck you and then there was two guys who did not have that reaction one of them was like I wrote a song about how emo is sexist, here's a demo. <laughs> like, totally wanted the trophy that I had created, especially for him. Um, and, uh, you know, the other person basically being like, you know, I want to sleep with you or whatever. And then, <laughs> then all the letters from the girls are like, thank you, I cried the whole way through, I'm starting like a, you know, a, a lady fest, I'm trying to have a band, I hate punk rock now, like whatever, you know, just like, that is my life, thank you. And and that was the first year, and then the next two years were just like an email about every day about it that was mostly girls by that point. So that was... That but was, it started in, in print and moved to email? Yeah, it's like, that is, that, that's like actually the thing where I was like, oh, that's when everyone started using the internet. It's like, <laughs> my... That's my mail changed. My fan mail changed. I can't believe people used to write letters to tell you how much. Think they about hate you. how mad you would have to be <laughs> to be like to spend money on the stamp. <laughs> write write like a full page letter. 
in your cursive, you know? <laughs> Go and put it in the mail. You had people were like a different kind of angry. Um, I just got maybe one more question for you. Okay. Maybe a couple more questions. One question is, um, how did you get into LA music when you were living here? Did you Jabberjaw, dude? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just went like, even if you like kind of. I mean, maybe some of the older people in this room will remember this. Like, even if you kind of heard about a Jabberjaw show and you're like, well, it might happen, you would go down there anyways and it'd be like, you know, 11 p.m. Pico Boulevard. I knew times. about the Jabberjaw from the That Dog album. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but I was also like, I'm in the valley and I don't know how to get to Central City, Los Angeles. <laughs> Someday. For the best. Um, but that was, that was what, and I, w- I had my own emo band and we played at the library in Huntington Beach and made the rounds. Um, but that was, I knew about all ages music here and part of the reason I was, wanted to be here was because I could participate in music, um, which um, the other places that I had lived previously, there was not much of that. You came out for the emo scene? Yeah. <laughs> stayed for the palm trees. <laughs> so it happens. That's that's how you get into Steely Dan. But I'm but part of <laughs> basically. But I part of the reason I wanted to move is because uh, Jabberjaw closed and I was like, what the hell is here what for me? What am I doing here? Yeah. I will have to go to Chicago where we have where we had an all ages bowling alley with hardcore matinees, which was like fully my speed at 22. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, I guess my last question is um this was just a question I have kind of about your working at Rookie is I feel like I used to make jokes a lot about the the 90s being our 60s and then I sort of realized it was true a little bit later because I you know because when when I was growing up in the 90s I was like oh I miss the 60s everything sucks now because riot girl yeah boomers yeah and because I I I got into stuff like that and I was just like I just got to find other people who who want to listen to sub pop and listen to the kind of music I want to listen to because I felt like I didn't know anybody but you know I feel like it was right before the internet made that possible to be Mm -hmm. like oh, you know, I like this type of music. I'm going to make a pen pal. Like, I was on message boards and things like that. But do you do you find that the younger kids uh, want to have a lot of questions about what the 90s were like? If they were as cool as they seem? Merciful, mercifully, no. <laughs> um, but, I, I mean, I guess how... I, the only, I mean, I guess sometimes uh, at some of the book events, people want to come up and um, who are like 16 or 17, and they're like, I just read this book about Riot Girl, and was it like that? <laughs> I'd be like, eh, sort of. Um, yeah. Way more fighting. Um, but that, uh, you know, I feel like um, I'm stoked that there's that sort of curiosity and that there's starting to be like some better representation um, better representation in terms of like documenting what the 90s were like for people who weren't like white guys in hardcore. Well, so now those, those girls can buy your book and maybe feel like that'll that would help. be great. <laughs> I would appreciate it. If I, I mean, if I, if I knew a cool kid, I would definitely be like, here, read this. I feel like it's one of those things that well, thank you. kind of, you know, like hearing Bikini Kill, it just like opens your mind of like, oh, there are other people who feel this way, and I thought I was the only one. Well, I hope that happens. Well, um, please give it to your teenagers, <laughs> friends, everyone. I just like the idea of like the mixtape of the, the guy I gave to you, just like, oh, here, now you're going to, this is going to influence you right at the right time when you need something, when you want someone to just give you... Because, you know, that is definitely like with the internet, kids can sort of, you know, you can download everybody's discography from all of time. But you can't download my book. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
And you can't download this experience of being here. Um, does anyone... <laughs> yeah, does anybody in the audience have questions? About it, almost anything. I will... Any yeah. question. Hey, how's it going? Oh, hi. How's it going? Hey, um, so which um, female musicians or bands do you think are influential or good role models for young girls now? I think all of them. Uh, for the most part, I think just, um, I know from my own experience, but also from talking to a lot of um, women and people I know that making music, that sometimes uh, all it takes is just seeing an example of someone on stage to be like permission. You know, so I, I, um, I don't want to like make like a hierarchy of like, and this person has like this very visible, explicit feminist agenda, and so they're doing it right because that's kind of that's not the yardstick I want to use. So just gals doing it is kind of enough for me most of the time. Yes. And what about your band? How was that experience for you? Um, the uh, it was very it was very strange. Um, the last band that I was in, uh, I was like the touring bassist, and I was the uh, we were on like a five band package tour across the U.S. and it was twenty eight guys and me. <laughs> so that was basically I was like oh enough done um, and and it, you know I loved playing music and I feel like it made me more empathetic. Uh, though you probably can't discern that from the book towards uh, musicians um, and like the creative practice but um, yeah I mean it, it's uh, I'm glad that's sort of behind me I'd, I'd rather um, like working in music is like a, it's like that saying where people say like um, you never want to eat in a restaurant that you worked in you know like you just know what happens in the kitchen <laughs> I was like that was ba- that's basically it <laughs> are there, whoa. Are, are there any young writers that you're particularly excited about? Um, yeah, so uh, I'm an editor at Pitchfork. Do you know that website? <laughs> and it's pretty good. Uh, and I get to run the pitch, which is like the op-ed section, and like everybody that writes for me is a fucking genius. Where I'm like, how are you so... Sp- Art, uh, um, and they are constantly opening my mind and giving me new critical frameworks. But um, uh, there's a writer named Hazel Sills who writes for Rookie and a lot of other places. But I knew her from Rookie, and she's um, has like a tremendous mind. And Safi Holland Farah, uh, Dorian St. Felix, like everybody I get to work with in my section. I just I don't know. I could I could name names for like ten more minutes, but. You could just read that section and witness their genius in motion. Yes. Um, I love that piece that you did about the journalist who wrote about R. Kelly. Mm-hmm. I just wonder if you could talk about how that came about. Um, does everybody know? Does everybody know about R. Kelly? <laughs> <laughs> Don't need to synopsize. Okay. Um, so uh, that piece, uh, like, I'd kind of given up on R. Kelly very early on. I lived in Chicago and uh, was watching the news after uh, this journalist, Jim DeRogatis, had broken the story and had been sent this um, tape anonymously of uh, essentially R. Kelly's sex crimes. And um, <clears throat> and I saw these two girls on the news, and they were, like, uh, ninth graders being interviewed outside their high school, and they're like, yeah, no, he's, he's, like, in the parking lot, like, every day after school. We know his car. Yeah, no, he's cool. He dated my friend. And you're like, oh, fuck, that's enough. Done, 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 done. That's all I need to know. And um, 
years, many years go by, and then uh, two summers ago, he was headlining Pitchfork, and I was like, I'm leaving before he even steps foot on the stage, and then also I'm like talking to people, and it's like five songs in, and I'm like, oh, yes, now I know this song, and then I was like, oh my god, like, I'm dancing to R. Kelly, like, this is, oh, like, uh, all this moral math in my head just, like, swirling, and I was like, I gotta split, go home, take a Silkwood shower, like, fuck this, and, um, and then the next day, I was like, I don't know, somehow I like got into it with somebody on Twitter, as one does often <laughs> when you're a meme, and, uh, and some feminist friends of mine lovingly called me out. They're like, Jessica, you care about women, you care about black teenage women, don't you? Why the fuck are you like saying like, well, it's, you know, it's tricky, and I was like, okay, I need to like take account for that. And then the next morning, I got like a two thousand word email from Jim Goddess, who was who is like the person that broke the story and was like the only person for like I don't know thirteen years that gave a shit, and everyone made fun of him for it. Um, who was like, hey, so uh, I got this call like two o'clock in the morning from one of the women who's the original uh, sources I reported on for this R. Kelly story, crying, um, saying, thank you, you're the only person that gives a shit. And then he said, um, so I would like to give you my files because I think it would change your mind. And it's like boxes and boxes of transcripts, reporting, everything he did, you know, they knocked on, they, they straight up like drove to the south side knocking on doors style reporting. Um, and um, I was like, okay, I'll take. I will. I. I. Can't, I will not take all these files. I files. I will. Let's have a conversation about this. And that was how that happened. So, yes. <laughs> That's always, like, the question every night that sort of just, like, sucks the air out of the room. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it's like, you know, how often do we get to d- discuss um, celebrity rapists in public? <laughs> we don't. We don't. But it's a conversation we have to have. Or a monologue. Either way. <laughs> you and then you. Uh, hi. So, over the course of your career, how much have you seen... Um, music media and then the business of music production actually change in terms of their sexist attitudes? Um, or is it that you find that the people who are most marginalized by it are more vocal about it and can now find community with each other more easily? Yes. Um, that is correct, basically. Um, I mean, how it's changed is like when I was when I was first writing about music, it was really like, um, you know, centralized through gatekeepers in major media, and like I really lucked out because some of those people read my fanzine and like let me in. I shouldn't have, for any real reason, like been within those ranks or had that access. And I definitely feel like that has changed. I mean, like. Uh, even many of the places that I write, it would have been, like, inconceivable for as many, like, 20-year-old women of color writing about records by white dudes and, like, you know, all these things, like, that were just things that didn't happen 10 years ago, you know, that is very different, that I think is entirely due to blogs, internet, people finding out about, like, brilliant young writers much earlier, Tumblr, um, so I think that has been like a really uh, substantial and dynamic shift that I'm very excited about personally. Um, 
Thank you. Uh, on a similar note of changes in, in um, uh, media, uh, where do you see the relationship between music criticism and journalism going? Because there's been some uh, quite reactionary voices lately that music criticism is, is being reduced to lifestyle reporting, and I was wondering what your opinion on that would be. I mean, I think it's always going to... I hope it will always be a thing. Um, uh, I don't have any other marketable skills. Um, <laughs> I mean, people are always saying it's like, you know, the same thing happened like f- five years ago. And, and people, I mean, when I was doing things like making half my living, trying to figure out how to write like really good, funny charticles, because that was like what we were doing and that's how we were making a living. And then it's sort of uh, the corrective of that is like, now we're doing a lot of like long form. And everyone's like, yes, long form. We don't want to just read lists anymore. We also want to read articles and reporting. Um, and so I think that's, uh, I think we realize like, oh yeah, no, we still, we still need like real criticism. I, you know, I don't think it's going anywhere like away as a form. Maybe it will just be in different places, but people aren't going to stop doing it um, because we didn't stop doing it even a few years ago when some of us had a much harder time making a living doing it. It just, it just went elsewhere. Anyone else? Anyone else? No hands? Oh my gosh, someone way over in there. Hello. Um, doing, you know, doing music writing for all these years, like, what keeps you going? Like, through all the financial, you know, tumult challenges and uh, all the changes in music and stuff, like, what, like, why do you keep doing it after all these years? I mean, it's like literally the only thing I know how to do. <laughs> I mean, I've been doing this since I was 15, so it's like, like I had um, before, uh, be- my last two jobs were in L.A. I didn't have a job for 19 years. My last two jobs, I worked at the Recycler, taking ads, right? Like, has everyone here had that job? Yeah. Um, I worked there for a week and then I used to work at Aaron's Records and I got fired for being like too enthusiastic and like constantly <laughs> taking people out being like oh my god have you heard Zen Arcade before? Follow me. You know um, and those are my last two jobs and then I was freelance for 19 years uh, basically I did some own, like I did PR for bands and record labels um, and then uh, about six months ago I got a job at Pitchfork and so um I didn't go to college. I, I literally, it's like I can like raise children and write record reviews. And that's kind of it. <laughs> the end. How about that? How about we end there? You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.